Amen. Well, thank you so much. You may be seated. Uh, take your Bible for just a moment. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be for the next few moments. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, Dr. Uh, Getch, thank you for that introduction. We, um, we started the church in 2008 in Castle Rock, Colorado. I wish it was right out of college. I wish it was. <laughs> I'm almost 50. Uh, I guess I'll be 50 in, uh, in April, and uh, time is flying by. Let me just tell you this, uh, college students, I feel like I was just sitting where you're sitting right now. I think that all of the, the men in here right now would say the same thing. Life goes by so fast. We just had our missions conference at our church this weekend, and I reminded our church that we needed to make decisions based on not what would make us happy tomorrow, next week, but really begin to make decisions about what would be pleasing to the Lord and in decisions that we would be thankful we made a hundred years from now, because we'll still be living. Yeah, a hundred years from now, everything that we've done will truly be revealed what matters and what doesn't. A thousand years from now, what was the decision you made? You'll be thankful that, that you made the right decision. A million years from now, we'll still be in heaven. And we just heard a song a moment ago. And I don't know all the things we'll do in heaven. I'm thankful that we'll have eternity in heaven to praise our God. There's no doubt about that. We'll enjoy that. But I think one of the things we'll be able to be involved in is is meeting people that we had some kind of opportunity that we never met here on this earth, but a but hundred years from now and a thousand years from now, we might come across people that, that through some missionary, through some faith promise missions giving, through uh, some outreach, through some person we influenced and now they want, went out and influenced somebody else. And uh, I think we'll be able to get to know those people and talk about those stories for eternity. So what you do today matters. It's so good to be here today at West Coast Baptist College. Thank you for your faithfulness. And uh, our church prays for this ministry. I pray uh, for this ministry. So many of the leaders in this church have, have uh, been leaders in my life. I'm thankful for Pastor Chapel and his investment. I'm thankful for uh, Dr. Getch, the invitation to be here this morning. We've had him at our church and, and uh, still remember the messages he preached a number of years ago in our ministry and the help that he was to us. I, I get a text just about every single week, I believe every week from Dr. R, and uh, just the, the encouragement and prayer, and I'm thankful uh, for the ministry and so many that have encouraged us uh, from this place. Take your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, for just a moment. I want to I stop for a moment this morning and talk to a few people that you have been called, yes, to ministry, maybe some of you church planting, some of you missions, some of you uh, will be teachers down the road, but that there might be some in here that say, well, listen, that's not what God's doing with me. I, I think I'm going to be a, a, a housewife, or maybe I'm going to be somebody that works in, the, in, in some field here. I'm not sure it's going to be full-time vocational ministry. I want you to realize this. Every believer, every Christian ought to be in full-time Christian ministry. And there are some decisions that as I look back at my college days, I wish there was a few things that I might have thought about a little bit earlier. Some decisions that if I could go back all these years and, and change a few things, I, I think there's probably a few decisions I would stop and I'd say, you know what, these are things that I really believe that, that would have helped me so long ago had I made these decisions years ago. Someone said this, they said some men are giants in their daydreams only. I don't remember who said it, but I understand the, the sentiment. Some of us see ourselves one day as doing great things for God. 
Some of us, when we picture the future, we, we see ourselves a little bit as a David walking out in the Valley of Elah, and uh, we kind of picture ourselves as, 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 as taking the courage to be able to go out and face the Philistine. When we think about future ministry, we say, God, use us in such a great way. And we kind of picture ourselves as an Elijah calling down the fire from heaven on the top of Mount Carmel. Maybe we see ourselves as one of Daniel's three friends when faced with bowing or burning, declaring death preferable to surrender. And sometimes we get in our minds that that is what ministry is going to look like. That there's going to be the, the major mountaintop moments of, of ministry. And, and sometimes we get in our mind that that's what it's going to look like. That's what it'll be like. And, uh, and, and we say, Lord, sign me up. I'm, I'm ready for those big days. I'm, I'm ready to stand in these moments. But successful Christians understand this. Faithfulness is not developed in the monumental moments, but rather revealed there. It's not the monumental moment that prepares you for ministry. It's actually the very small and very private moments of your life. It's the decisions that you make in the prayer closet. It's the things you do every day when you wake up, the priority that you place in your life. It's not the, well, listen, when I'm, when I'm ready to go out and do this great thing, God, here I am. It's God taking somebody that has faithfully, daily done exactly what God wants them to do and has, has led them to do. And we see that with Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, we understand that, that Daniel purposes not in front of everybody, not making a great declaration. The Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart. And I want to challenge you this morning to make a decision. To not be looking just down the road at, at the major monumental moments, but, but to make a decision today that I will prepare myself in such a way that anytime God is ready to use me, I'll be ready. Anytime God is ready to, to, to reach down and he needs a man or a woman to stand in the gap, I'll be ready for that because the way that I've lived my life up to this moment has prepared me for this moment. Jonathan Edwards, a number of years ago, wrote a number of resolutions, 75 of them. He was not 25 years of age, and, and he wrote these resolutions. He said one of them was, resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. He said, I'm resolved. Never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. He said, I'm resolved never to do anything, which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. And this morning, I guess I'm just asking some college students to make some resolutions. Some college students to say, you know, I'm resolved that, that whatever it is that God leads me to do, not tomorrow, not next year, not, not 10 years from now, I'm resolved to do what God wants me to do today. Father, would you use this next few moments we have together? I pray it bless. Thank you for these college students and 
for bringing them to this place. Lord, what an amazing ministry. They have the privilege of rubbing shoulders with some incredible leaders, some godly men and women. And Father, I pray that they would not just see the platform that someone like Pastor Chapel has or some of these leaders that are here leading today, but Father, I pray they would see the, the praying, the preparation. I pray, Lord, they'd see the, the separation from the world. I pray they would see the work and the time and the effort. And, and Father, I pray that you would help them to see that it takes a, a separated, godly man or woman to be truly used. So, Father, I pray you'd bless these next few moments we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you about five, I think, this morning principles that I wish I would have I've really learned when I was younger, the very first principle is this, there is no substitute for integrity. There is no substitute for integrity. When I was uh, a college student, uh, I was, I was uh, 1991, I had come on to, to the campus of a Bible college, and I remember that as I got there, uh, so many things were different. I grew up in a small Christian school, and, and we had uh, one graduate my, my senior year, it was me, and, and uh, we just had a, a very small ministry. I got on this brand new college campus, and, and I didn't know what was going on, and everything was a little intimidating and overwhelming, and I, I remember that there was a man I heard about. His name was Mr. Reggie Sellers. Mr. Sellers was over the information desk on campus. If you know anything about an information desk, of course, that's the place you get answers and people have to be sharp and organized. And, and Mr. Sellers was that. He was over the information desk and he knew what was going on. And, and so he was the one interviewing students and teaching and training and all of that. And, and I remember that Mr. Sellers had gotten word through one of my friends that he was going to ask me to be interviewed by him to work at the information desk. Now, a couple of things you have to know about Mr. Sellers. First of all, you have to know this about Mr. Sellers. Mr. Sellers was sharp. I mean, when you saw Mr. Sellers, every one of his hairs was perfectly in place. His, 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 his clothes were, were perfectly pressed. I mean, his shoes were shined. Mr. Sellers was a sharp man. But you also had to know this about Mr. Sellers. He was tough. I remember hearing stories about students after Mr. Sellers had corrected them about something and he didn't pull any punches, he was a tough individual. And so I had, I had heard that Mr. Sellers wanted to talk to, to me, a freshman on this, this huge campus. One day I went to my box and I got a little note and, and sure enough, there it was. It was Mr. Sellers asking me to go to the interview. And, and so that morning I remember waking up and I got ready to go out and see Mr. Sellers and, and I made sure that my shoes were shined. I made sure that, that, that my clothes were pressed and, and, and I ironed them all really nicely that day. I remember that every hair on my head was perfectly in place. I remember walking into his office and as I, I walked in, Mr. Sellers looked at me but didn't say anything. He motioned over to the chair just over next to the, to the wall and, and he just kind of motioned to sit over there. So I remember walking in, I sat over in the chair and Mr. Seller said, do you know what integrity is? Now I remember that in my mind in that moment, I thought to myself, oh, of course, I, I know what it is. I grew up in a pastor's home. I grew up in a Christian school. Of course, I've heard this word all my life. I, I know what integrity is, but in that moment, I couldn't think of it. 
In that moment, I was, I was so under pressure by Mr. Sellers and, and I was getting flustered and I'm thinking in my mind, integrity, 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 what is this? I know what this word is. And I couldn't think of it, but I was so embarrassed to tell him that and I wanted that job so badly that I looked at Mr. Sellers right in the eye and I said, yes, sir, I do. How ironic that Mr. Sellers asks me if I understand what integrity is and I can't think of it and I look at him and I tell him I know exactly what it is. Let me define integrity for you for a moment. It is a wholeness of character. A sailor might put it like this, if, if, uh, if their ship went through a great storm, the sailor may say, well, listen, that, that, that those waves were huge and we went through it, but, but, but even after all of that, the ship retained its integrity. In other words, it didn't spring any leaks, it, it wasn't compromised, it wasn't damaged. And I want you to know this today, students, the first thing that will hurt and destroy your ministry is if your integrity is compromised. But what Daniel understood was as he stood in front of those that were challenging him, even in the face of great opposition, there was something about Daniel that said, it doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter what you say to me. It doesn't matter if you throw me into the lion's den. I will do every day what I know I'm supposed to do today. My son, when he was getting ready to go off to boot camp, I remember that he's actually a, a recon Marine now in Mobile, Alabama, getting ready to go off to, to be deployed here soon. I, I'll never forget this. He, he got ready to go off to boot camp. They, they asked him some questions there at boot camp, and, and one of the questions they were preparing him for his medical exams before boot camp, and this was his dream all his life to, to, to be a Marine. And, and I remember going in his room, he was 12 or 13 years old, and, and when he was just a kid, I'd walk in, he would be 12, 13, and, and he would be sleeping on the floor, no, no pillow, no blanket, no nothing. He'd be, he'd be sleeping on the floor, and I'd walk in, and I'd say, son, what are you doing on the floor? You've got a bed, it's comfortable. And, and sometimes he'd look up at me and say, dad, sometimes you've got to tell your body what to do. He was just that, built that way. This is who he is. He loves that kind of thing. And so, so he got ready to go, and he'd been preparing all these years for, to, to go into the Marines and to go to boot camp. And, and I remember that he stood in front of the person getting him ready for what's called MEPS. That's, that, that's the medical entrance exams that they do and all of that. And, and so he's sitting in front of the a person preparing him for it, and they asked him if he had had a certain medication when he was growing up. My, my son said, yeah, I have. And, and the, the man getting him ready for, for MEPS said, no, no, you haven't. And my son uh, didn't quite catch on. He said, no, no, I, I actually, I have had that medication when I was growing up and I, I needed that. And, and the man preparing him said, no, uh, you haven't. He said, now, if, if you tell them that you have, there's good chance you're not going to be able to get in. I remember my, my son came home and he was so upset. I remember him walking around and I could just tell there was something wrong in his spirit. And I, I said, hey, son, what's, what's going on? He said, dad, he said, they, they told me that when I'm supposed to go in front of this, this, this uh, uh, medical examiner, they told me today that I've got to lie. He said, but I cannot lie. Of course, we talked about it. We said, well, Lord, tr uh, Chase, trust the Lord on this. And 
and uh, it, it'll be okay. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. And, and sure enough, he stood in front of that medical examining board and, and they asked him that question and he told them that he had, in fact, had that medication. And do you know that it took him probably three more months? He had to go through all kinds of tests and, and a battery of different things as a result of that. But God honored the decision that he got in. I remember telling our, our church once, we had a, a bunch of police officers there on, on site one day and I remember telling the church that it had just happened. And one of the police officers in our church came to me after the service in his dream all these years, my son's, is, is to go into the, the police force after he's finished with his military career. And, and one of those officers that day said, do you know that when they get into going into the police force, one of the questions that they'll have them hooked up to with a polygraph test is if you ever lied before to any government institution, any military institution, have you lied to get where you are today? Sometimes those little decisions seem like so small. Well, Lord, it's not that big a deal. I mean, I, I, you know, it's in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to hurt anything. And, and in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't make a big difference. But I want you to know this. It is your integrity that allows you to be fit for ministry. I want you to understand this. There's no substitute for integrity. But would you notice this, number two, people will hurt you. Love them anyway. Would you notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43? I want to read these verses with you. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 43, You've heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. You know what is so difficult to do this? You know what's easy to do? It's easy to love people that love you. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that later. He, he said, what thank have ye if, if you just love people that love you? What thank have ye if the only people that, that you do anything for, the only ones that, that you bless, the only ones you invite over for a meal, the only ones you do something for, what thank have ye if, if you only love people that love you? That's normal. I was growing up on my street. There was a, there was a young man named Tommy DiBernardo. I was, I was probably 15 years old. We had one of those basketball hoops that you'd, you'd lower down, you know, and you could go in there with a little mini basketball. And, and I remember going through there, and I'd dunk the ball, and I'd do a 360, and I'd do tomahawk jams. And, and Tommy DiBernardo would come over, and he was probably about nine years old. I was probably 15 or so. And he would sit under the basketball hoop, and I would come down the lane, and I would do some great dunk. And Tommy DiBernardo, my neighbor, would do this. Wow. I said, wow, you think that was good, Tommy? Watch this. I'd come in there, you know, and do, a, do some kind of a, a windmill jam, and he'd go, that's amazing. Hey, let me tell you something about Tommy DiBernardo. I love that kid. I love Tommy. Hey, why do you think I love Tommy so much? I love Tommy because Tommy loved me. It was so, hey, this kid's coming to me all the time. Man, that's, that's amazing. You're awesome. Man, I love, I love watching what you do. This is unbelievable. And if you're not careful, sometimes in life, that's exactly what we do. We love people that love us. We do for people that do things for us. But here's what Jesus says. And by the way, you say, well, it does say in Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies. And, and that is the right thing to do. And it is so easy to do that until you have an enemy. 
And here's what Jesus says. He, he makes this. It's so countercultural. He said, I say in verse 44, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Lord, why do I have to do that? I don't, I don't like this person. They, they didn't treat me right. This person wrong. God, why do I have to do that? Why are you making me love these individuals that really don't even deserve to be loved by me? God, you know what they did to me. You know how they treated me. You know what they said to me. Why would you make me love this person? Watch what he says in verse 45. That she may be the children of your father, which is in heaven. What does he mean by that? That you may be the children of your father. You know what he's really saying here? He's saying this is the way to look like your father. This is the way to imitate, to mimic. This is the way that you get to be like your father. This is the way that you get to show the world the love of the father. You know, when you think about it, you ought to really honestly be thankful. You ought to praise God for the people that he brings into your life that allow you to imitate him. The Bible says it like this, your condition, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. There wasn't a thing in the world that was so lovely about you that, that you deserved heaven. There wasn't a thing in the world about you that deserved Jesus to come and give his life for you. And yet the Bible says that God loved you so much that he sent his son into the world. And when you forgive somebody that doesn't deserve forgiveness, you are mimicking the love that Jesus Christ gave to you. Do you realize there's churches all over the country right now that people have left churches because they couldn't get along with a brother or sister in Christ? There's churches right now all over the country. They just met yesterday or Sunday. They met this past Sunday. And there are people that will sit on this side of an auditorium. And there's people that will sit on this side of the auditorium. And they do that on purpose because they cannot see eye to eye. And the Bible tells us that we are to be gracious and forgiving. Jesus told us that, that, that one way that people will know that, that we love the Father and are of him is that we will love the brethren and love one another. That there may be somebody in here right now that somebody has hurt you and they've done something to you and you're wasting your life disobeying God instead of simply saying, God, I release this to you. I'm not going to hold on to this any longer. People will fail me. They will hurt me. There's no doubt about it. But I will choose to love them anyway. Well, would you notice this number three? People will hurt you, love them anyway. There's no substitute for integrity. But I want you to notice this. And, and, and college students, would I want you to hear this. Talent is overrated. Talent is overrated. Talent's overrated. So some of you in here right now, you're talented. I, and hey, by the way, praise God for talent. There's nothing wrong with talent. Praise God that, that you have an incredible singing voice. Praise God that, that you have a great personality. Praise God that, that you're funny, you're, you're intellectual, you're athletic. Praise God for the things. Praise God that you've got a good personality or you're good. Hey, praise God for that. But there's some people here that say, listen, I don't really have a lot of talent. 
I was always one of those guys. I, I don't have a lot of talent. I can play sports or uh, I like to hang out with people. But I, I look at some pastors and, and, and ministers and I say, wow, those, these guys have amazing talent. I wish I had that. But I want you to understand this. Talent is overrated. Well, when I went to college, we had, we had a group of people that, that based on their talent, they rose right to the top. You know what I'm talking about? You know, they kind of get to college and, and maybe uh, when they were in high school, they had opportunities to preach and, and they had opportunities to lead in their youth group. I didn't have that. So when I got there, I was timid and shy and, and I hadn't done all that. And, and you know, what I'm talking about these, these are the people that kind of go right to the top. That they, they, they're the ones that get to be asked to be put in leadership positions right away. And so, so, so they get put in those places. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But here's what I want to say for just a moment. Talent is overrated. Your talent will only get you so far. What I, what I started noticing is I was, I, I consider myself kind of a late bloomer. You know, I, I went through college and, and I wasn't remarkable in any way. I, I didn't get the job with Mr. Sellers. I, I didn't work at the information desk. I never had some, some great leadership position. I enjoyed my experience, but, but there were guys always that were way ahead of me. And here's what I noticed about 30 years of age. What I started to see is there were some guys that, that started here in front of everybody else and about age 30 or so, they came, kind of came back to the past. Do you know why? Because a lot of them just depended on their talent. A lot of them didn't depend on, on, on making wise choices. A lot of them didn't depend on a, a, an authentic walk with Jesus Christ. A lot of them didn't get in the Word every day. A lot of them didn't pray the way they should have. A lot of them uh, didn't have integrity. And so I want you to know this. Talent is overrated. But what, God, what is God looking for? He's looking for passion and obedience. Hey, would you take your Bible for a minute, 1 Samuel 17, and, and I, I just want to read a couple verses and just see if this doesn't just jump out at you the way it jumps out at me. 1 Samuel 17, the Bible says, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with his Philistine. And in verse 37, listen to this, and Saul says unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. Isn't that nuts? You ever think about that? That is crazy. Why in the world, Saul, would you send David out? Listen, here's why I think he sends him out. There's something in David that is passionate about what God wants him to do. And he convinces Saul that there's something in him that's burning and Saul sees it. There's something in David that's able to say, wow, God put me in this back of this field and, and we had a lion and a bear and God allowed me to defeat this lion and bear and God will allow me to do this too. Can I tell you something? There's something about a believer that has a passion for ministry that says, God, you can use me. I want to be used. Lord, put me in. Amen. There's something about talent that that just to be honest, it's, it's a little overrated. David wasn't the most talented man on the battlefield that day, but he was passionate. He was obedient. And I believe there's, a, there's some college students here right now that can identify with that and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not the most talented person here, but, but if I'll apply myself and trust my God, God can use what I have. Okay, can I give you number four? We have to move quickly. Love, love Jesus more than you love your ministry. There's a lot of people that love ministry. They love what ministry gives them. That they love the pats on the back. They, they love people praising their preaching. 
that they love being in a leadership position. They love that their family gets taken care of through ministry. They, they, they love a lot of the trappings of ministry, but, but, but when it comes right down to it, they love ministry more than they love Jesus, and that is a recipe for disaster. Take your Bible to Luke chapter 10 for just a moment. I want to see Jesus training his ministers. Sometimes pastors get caught up in this up and down roller coaster of ministry and Sometimes we, our identity is all about what's going on around us. Attendance numbers are good, then, then everything is great. High attendance, great day. Low attendance, depression. People compliment our sermon, great day. Whispers of criticism, depression. Surplus in the bank account, great day. Budget running in the red, depression. A freeing day for a minister of God is when we realize that who we are is more important than what we do. In Luke chapter 10, it's really interesting. G Jesus sends out some disciples and he gives them this power to be able to go out and, and, uh, and heal the lame and the sick and, and they're doing some amazing things. And listen to what it says, Luke, seven, Luke 10 and verse 17. The 70 return again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any, man, by any means hurt you. Here's what's happening. Uh, they come back and they're saying, God, uh, they're saying, Jesus, this is amazing. We have seen some of the greatest ministry days we've ever seen. And they're almost high-fiving each other and saying, wow, this is awesome. This ministry is amazing. And, and Lord, you're not going to believe what we saw and all the, all the things that just took place. And here's what Jesus says in verse 20. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not. They don't rejoice in having power over the enemy. Don't rejoice in being able to tread on serpents and scorpions. Don't rejoice in, in the healing power you were given. He, he says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Do you understand that your identity is not what you do? Jesus says, it's, hey, don't rejoice in, in just the things that happen here. What I want you to know this is I want you to rejoice in who you are and the value you, that you've been given, the identity you have in Jesus Christ. And I'm just here to tell you, it will help you through the rest of the days of your ministry if you will keep that in the proper context. Yes, people will come and go. Yes, sometimes they'll compliment sermons. Yes, sometimes we'll have big days. But the only thing that will sustain you in the difficult days... God, you love me. I am yours. You will take care of me. You own me. Whatever you want to do with me, I submit to you. Some of us need to enter ministry loving Jesus more than we love our ministry. And then I want to give you one more thing, and we've got to be finished. I want you to write these three words down. Time multiplies decisions. Time multiplies decisions. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Some of us look off into the future and say, God, I want to be on that Mount Carmel. I want to be in the Valley of Elah. I want to, I want to do the big things. But, but, but recognize this for just a moment. Nobody gets to the big moment without taking the little steps.
Some of the things that you are being encouraged to do at this college right now is to, to make a morning routine that will prepare you for the future. That the little things, well, you know, I read my devotions, but it doesn't really seem to change me that much. I do pray, it doesn't really seem to, to change that much. I, I go to church, I don't know that I really got that much. Do you realize that, that time multiplies decisions in that the one little decision you make, it doesn't seem like it changes much, but all of a sudden, before you know it, there's a compounding effect. It's kind of like going to the gym. People quit the gym. The January 1st, everyone's in the gym. And January uh, 7th, they're still in the gym. And two weeks later, the, a lot of them are still in the gym. But it's getting a little bit uh, thinner in there. And the reason for that is because they go to the gym and they work out and they, and they sweat. And they look in the mirror and nothing changed. And they go for a week and they look in the mirror and nothing changed. And they go for three weeks and they look in the mirror and, and nothing changed. And the reality is there's cells that are breaking down and, and there's things that are going on in the body that, that all of this is not going to change overnight. But then there's a compounding effect that all of a sudden now you start to see a difference. Things begin to change. Do you know there's some forms of uh, some, some kinds of bamboo that, that you have to actually cultivate that bamboo for months and sometimes even years, you can cultivate the soil, you can water it and not see one single thing come up out of the ground. But once it starts growing, they say that it can grow three feet in a day. Time multiplies decisions. That the little things that you know are the right thing to do, the little moments that you say, I will do what I'm supposed to do. A number of years ago, you can look this up in 1983, there was a man by the name of Cliff Young. He was a potato farmer. In 1983, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney for an amazing event. It was an endurance race from Sydney, Australia to Melbourne, 543 miles long. Cliff Young was, was a potato farmer. He shows up that day, 150 of the most sculpted bodies in the world show up to this place for this great race. And, and Cliff Young shows up and, and he walks up to the registration table and he's wearing galoshes and overalls. He's, he's missing most of his teeth. And so he goes and, and people are wondering that, that thinking he's probably just going to ask for directions to wherever the restrooms are. He's got some question they need to answer. Cliff Young walks up and he asks for a number. He wants to register. Well, people are laughing. They're, they're kind of snickering like, well, who's this potato farmer here? You know, I mean, what, what in the world is Cliff doing here? He can't run a race like this. This is, this is for the most intense athletes in the world. They give him a number, 64. You can look it up later. Same as Cliff Young. He's got this, uh, he's got pictures online about this big race that he was involved in. And he's got the number 64 and they, and they line them all up. 150 of the, the greatest athletes. The gun goes off and everyone takes off. And they say when Cliff Young took off, he had kind of an odd shuffle. As a matter of fact, people started to, to, to talk to each other and yell out, hey, listen, stop this man. He's going to kill himself. 150 of the greatest runners in the world take off and, and Cliff Young kind of starts shuffling behind. They leave him in the dust. In five days... 15 hours, four minutes later, Cliff Young comes shuffling across the finish line. 
Five days, 15 hours. Four minutes later, he comes across the finish line nine hours and 56 minutes before the second place finisher. People are, people are, they're, what in the, how in the, what, what happened? How does, how did he, 10 hours in front of the same, how in the world does he even finish this race, let alone finish first? Cliff Young was interviewed. They, they asked him, how, how, did, how did you make up so much time over the greatest runners in the world? Cliff Young said, well, I guess I didn't know. Nobody told him that those runners, those highly trained athletes would run for 18 hours every day and they would go and sleep for six. And then go and get up and run 18 more hours and go back and sleep for six and get up for 18 and go back and sleep for six. Nobody told Cliff Young that, so he just kept running. He had no idea that he was supposed to stop. And so at night, when, when he was way behind, they would, they would go and they'd rest and sleep. And, and somewhere in the night, he'd pass them up. And the next day, they'd, they'd go blow by him again. And, and he just kind of kept on going. And I want you to know this today. That there are some young people here right now that all you need to really understand is, I may not be the fastest. I might not be the most talented. I might not have this and I might not have that. But if you will simply do what God wants you to do today and put the time in today and read the Bible today and walk with Jesus today and be honest today and forgiving today and just keep your eyes on Jesus, it is amazing if you just do the things you're supposed to do. How God puts you exactly where he wants you to be. Time. Multiply. It didn't seem like it did anything today, but look what God did with the time multiplies decisions. Hey, those are just a few things I wish that when I was your age, I would have started earlier.